Thank me. Thank you. If you will, please open your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, and uh, if you picked up a Bible there in the back of the room, it's on page 72 of the Bible. Exodus 32. They're beginning with verse 1. Here we have Moses up on Mount Sinai receiving God's covenant for the people of God. And we read there at the beginning of this chapter. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that I, my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. May the Lord bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. thanks, John. We come this morning, for those of you who've been a part of this series, to the third in this uh, desire to bring prayer before the minds of our people. We've entitled this series, Pray Like This. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. Pastor Mark opened the series and helped us understand the pattern that should normally regulate our prayers in the Lord's Prayer, which we're reinforcing by going through the Heidelberg Catechism. But one of the salient points was simply this, God first, us second. We start by asking about what is the most significant thing in the universe, and that is that God's name be hallowed, that his kingdom come, that his will be done. Then last week, I spent some time on the prerequisite for prayer. The prerequisite is faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who draw near to Him must believe that He is and that He's the rewarder of those who seek Him. And so I labored to 
help us appreciate again that faith is critical to prayer, but really the burden of my sermon last week, for those of you who are here uh, will remember, was that the greater our faith, the greater our success in prayer. Jesus made it very clear that there are degrees of faith. He said to his disciples, Oh, you of little faith. When they said, Lord, why couldn't we cast those demons out? He said, because of your little faith. Not because of your lack of faith, but because of your little faith. And so we stressed how critical it is that we take full advantage of this growing grace and live in the Word of God and live on our knees and experience an increase in our own personal faith, which should reflect itself in the way we pray and the results we get from prayer. Now today, I'm privileged to preach on the third word, which is persuasion. Now I don't know how many people see our e-bulletin, but I trust that at least all of you glance at the screen behind me, usually at the beginning of these sermons, and maybe you saw that word persuasion. And I deliberately chose that word in part for an effect. I wanted to arouse your interest, and I actually hoped that some of you would say, wait a minute, is P.T. saying that we can actually persuade God to do things that he otherwise was not really interested in doing? Is he implying that God actually has his own preferred plan, but somehow through prayer we are able to get him to change his mind. That can't be right. God's plans are always perfect from the very start. He never has to change his mind. To change the mind of God would be to make him mutable. I thought one of God's attributes was immutability. Any change on God's part, would have to be either a change for the better or a change for the worse. If God goes along with a, quote, better plan, then that means his was inferior. That can't be, I hope all of you are saying. But what if I suggested to you that sometimes and in some places in the Word of God, God himself wants us to think of prayer in that way, namely, that we can change his mind, that we are able to persuade him, even though it is certain that God never, ever, ever, ever changes his mind. What if I told you that God sometimes wants us to persuade him against what seems clearly to be his will, just by the way he reveals it. Would you think that I was an Arminian? And if you don't know what an Arminian is, talk to me afterward or any of the pastors, and they'll briefly explain that system of theology. Would you think that I was heterodox, which means not really sound and orthodox in my theology? Or worse yet, would you think that I was a heretic? I wouldn't be disappointed if that were your initial reaction. Well, I would like to take a few minutes this morning to prove what I just asserted. You may be saying, what again was it that you asserted? I said, sometimes when it comes to prayer, God wants us to persuade him against what seems clearly to be his will. By the way, I'm not going to quickly and immediately give you the theological relief that your heart and brain may be craving for right now. At least not immediately. And I hope your hearts and your brains are calling for some kind of relief. I hope you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor Ted. What you're saying just can't be theologically sound. Well, in one sense, I've already given you some relief because I've already said God never, never, ever, ever changes his mind. I'm making a different point. 
So I want you to first feel a dilemma. Because if you don't feel the dilemma, either you're not thinking or I haven't enabled you to track with me. And if you don't feel and see the dilemma, you certainly and most importantly will miss the sort of hidden encouragement for us to pray with what I'm going to call persuasive earnestness. So just kind of set that category aside and we'll be thinking about it. Persuasive earnestness. Let me just quickly give you an example or two of how the Lord the Lord leads us to believe either by his providence or words found in scripture that something is his will which in fact proves not to be his will. Feel the tension? And he does this on purpose. And the purpose is so that we will, and listen to this word, argue with him until he grants us what, in fact, was his will all along. Now, I just gave you a little more relief before we've actually looked at the passage. So what is example one? Well, I'm not going to have you turn to it because I think it's relatively familiar. It's the, it's the parable that Jesus gave us in Luke 18 about the persistent widow. Some headlines call it the importunate widow. You remember the woman who needed justice and she kept going before the judge, repeatedly crying for justice, asking for justice against her adversary. And the judge didn't give her justice. But eventually, in our Lord's story, he becomes weary of her coming. And he reasons with himself, and he says, if I don't answer this prayer, this persistent argument on her part, she's going to wear me out. In fact, literally, he says, she's going to give me a black eye. She's going to beat me down, is what the original language would actually imply. And so what does he do? He grants her her request. Now, last week I said to you, I would like us to think of prayer. This helps me. I don't know if it'll help you in terms of sort of four stages going like this. Faith, fervency, holy argument, which I'm going to be preaching about today, and perseverance. I'll say that again. Faith, that's the prerequisite. Fervency, holy argument, and perseverance. If you want a way to remember it, just think of double F, HAP, F-F-H-A-B. Faith, fervency, holy argument, perseverance. Faith, fervency, holy argument, perseverance. I, I would be happy if you wrote those words down and think about them. I think there's validity in that progression. And this woman was doing that. She believed that the judge could give her justice. She believed that he probably would give her justice. She, and so with that faith, she comes to him and fervently, his own words were cry, fervently appeals to him and uses a argument, if you will, because she is saying to him in essence, your honor, I didn't come to ask for a favor. You are a judge. And a judge by virtue of his office is supposed to uphold and sustain justice. I come to you and ask only for justice. And she persevered. And so you see, faith, fervency, argument, and perseverance. But my point is that if the judge is designed in some sense to be analogous to God, though there's contrast, and Jonathan prayed that this morning, if, if we earthly fathers who are sinful give gifts, good gifts to our children, how much more will the heavenly Father? And in a similar way, if an unjust judge responds to pleading, fervent pleading, arguing, 
How much more will a holy God do this? But the point is, we don't always get what we want when we want it. In fact, we don't always get what we want, period. And we trust God for that. But I'm making a point. Sometimes God holds off answering our prayers because he wants to do something in us. And that's what I meant by providence. Are any of you going through that right now? I know you are. Numerous. If I said, how many of you have been praying for a long time about something that doesn't seem to be happening? Are you ever prone to conclude, I, I'm beginning to believe it's not His will? What will you conclude if later, after persevering prayer, He answers that? Will you conclude then that it wasn't His will all along? No. You will say, he was drawing out of me faith and fervency and holy argument and perseverance. And that's what God sometimes does. Now, why would he do that? Is it really because he hasn't yet changed his mind? The answer, of course, is a resounding no. I've already said, God never really changes his mind. That would be an infirmity. Listen to me. It is because, as I said a moment ago, he is doing something gracious in us and is waiting to see something God-glorifying from us, which brings him delight. And when he finally grants the request if he so chooses. It happens right on time, his time. And it proves to be what he was planning to do all along, from all eternity. Now, I want to quickly insert a critical qualifier on this whole subject of prayer. Please be careful not to misunderstand me this morning. I am not teaching that God will always answer our prayers if we just have enough faith, fervency, holy argument, and perseverance. I'm not teaching that. The key word being always. Please memorize 1 John 5, 14 and 15. I quoted them last week because those two verses form for us the bedrock upon which all other Prayer promises rest. And there are four words in particular in verse 14 which become the, the card that trumps all other prayer promise cards. Listen to the promise again. Quote, This is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything, we love the word anything, and it is a good word. If we ask anything according to his will, according to his will, four words, the bedrock of all prayer promises. Yes, we must have faith. Yes, we will get more answers if we have more faith. Yes, God does not answer sometimes because we don't ask and other times because we don't ask with enough faith. We saw that last week. But... His gracious prayer promises do rest on this. And so John goes on to say, If we ask according to anything that is according to his will, he hears us, and we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. If we know that, we know that we're going to get what we ask for. So to get a hearing with God in that sense means to get a favorable response. So, what I'm teaching this morning is not that whatever we pray for in faith, fervently, with holy argument and perseverance, will be answered. It will, if, if, and only if it is according to his will. So that's a very important, critical qualifier in my sermon this morning. But, now listen. Now I'm coming back to the burden of the sermon. 
But when it is his will to answer our prayers, often, often, by the way, it's not often, as it sounds so nice to say often, check it out in the dictionary, the T is not to be pronounced, often, why did you throw that in there, what's that? I don't want it to be a distraction. Often, he tests our faith by giving us reasons through his province or sometimes even through the words found in the Bible to think that something is not actually his will in order to cultivate our faith and develop within us the heart and the skill of bringing to him the best of reasons for doing what we're asking him to do. What we sometimes call, and I've already called, holy argument. If you're not familiar with those, those words put together like that, then I, I ask you to think about that for the first time in your Christian life. There is such a thing as holy argument. And when I use the word argument in this context, of course, I'm not, first of all and foremost, thinking about a quarrel. That's the way we generally use the word. I'm not thinking about some kind of angry, emotional, um, verbal exchange that's tense. Argument simply means a discourse intended to persuade. That's all argument means, a discourse intended to persuade. So we can use that word, and we can say, could I, could I present a counter-argument? What do you want to do, have an argument? That's not what I'm talking about. Could I present a counter-reason to persuade you differently? Listen to what John Trapp says. And he's talking now about the woman that we looked at last week. She was that Canaanite woman who kept being discouraged by Jesus and his disciples. And finally she says, Lord, I accept your description of me. I am a dog. I'm a dog. I'm a Gentile. I'm an, un I'm an unworthy human being. But don't dogs at least get crumbs? And then you remember Jesus gave her a request and freed her daughter from the demons. Did he do it right away? What was providence indicating? It was indicating that this is probably not the will of God. What did she do? In her faith, she fervently presented holy argument and persevered until God gave her what was all along his will. And John Trapp says this. He, by the way, he's an old uh, commentator from the 1600s. He said, but it is otherwise with God. The oftener we come, we'd say the more often we come to him, the better welcome. The louder we cry, the sooner we are heard. And the often repetition of the self-same petition till we, now listen to this, till we put the Lord out of countenance. Put the Lord out of countenance, it means... He's not smiling now. He's looking at us. Or maybe he wasn't smiling and now he changes that countenance. Put him out of countenance, as we would say, to the blush. It's almost kind of like, humanly speaking, an embarrassed countenance. And even leave a blot on his face, as the Greek word signifies in Luke 18, verse 5. What is Trapp saying? He's saying it does make a difference when we, re when we pray repeatedly and earnestly about something we believe to be good and not relinquish our prayers until it becomes unarguably evident that it's not the will of God. Now, let me show you then an even better and clearer illustration of God's intentionally revealing something he seemed genuinely determined to do, which in fact he would not or could not do, but was actually designed by him to produce a theologically grounded, faith-filled prayer of holy argument, and that on the part of one of his choice servants, which ends up having 
only the appearance of talking God out of God's plan. That was a long sentence, but I hope you got the idea. I'm ready now to show you a clear biblical illustration where God seemingly intends to do something, but he really didn't seriously intend to do it, but he wanted his servant to believe he was going to do it. Follow me. He wanted Moses to believe that's what he's going to do. Because if Moses doesn't believe it, he's not going to pray the way he prayed. But the fact of the matter is, all along, God was planning to do what Moses prayed. Follow my point. It's really, I, I really only have one point. God sometimes gives us reason to believe that such and such is not his will, so and so is his will, but when we pray, we find out that in fact such and such was his will. But we don't know until we pray the way Moses prayed. And that's where I'm pushing our congregation today in this sermon. Faith is a prerequisite, but faith produces fervency and holy argument, and God responds to fervency and holy argument. He does. So, where is it? It's in the passage that John read for us. So let's look at it now, briefly. Exodus 32. Now you know what was happening. That's a pretty familiar story. Moses is up on the mountain. He's receiving the Ten Commandments little knowing that in a few minutes he's going to crash them on a rock and decimate them. Because while he's gone for 40 days, and his own people, whom he had redeemed, humanly speaking, have forgotten about him. Where's Moses? Where is he anyway? We don't see Moses anymore. He's not really on my horizon. Is he on your horizon? Forget about Moses. We need, to, we need some gods around here. Aaron, let's get all the gold. And you know what happened? They make a golden calf, and Aaron comes up with that ridiculous answer later to Moses that I threw all the gold in the furnace, and out it came like a calf. I can't believe what happened. Ridiculous. And they're, they're living riotously, and they're making merry, and they're happy, and they're happy, and they're oblivious to God. And God comes to Moses And you heard what he said as John read it today. He says in verse 7, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it and said to it, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Moses, I'm done with these people. Go down there and tell them that judgment is about to fall. And what does Moses do? The people who have forgotten about him, he can't forget. He loves his people. But there's something burning more hotly in his heart than love for his fellow Israelites. It is love for the glory of God. And Moses says, God, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. It's not, please don't do it. It's you can't do that. Because if you do that, then the Egyptians and the whole world will believe that you're not a God of integrity. You promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that you would make a great nation, and now you're going to destroy them, and they're going to say, oh, there's the God of the Israelites. He woos them out in the wilderness as if their goal is to sacrifice to him, and he's going to sacrifice them. There's the God of the Israelites. God, you can't do that. 
That's his argument. But here's what I want you to appreciate. Before he gives that argument, did you notice those three strange words that God said to him before Moses said anything? Let me alone. What? God talking to a human being and saying to a human being, a mere creature, let me alone? Yes. Why did he say, let me alone? Because he knew that if Moses were able to speak, he would utilize holy argument and he would seemingly change the mind of God. But guess what? It wasn't going to change the mind of God. It was actually going to implement the mind and the plan of God all along. Now, here's a question for you. Do you think, do you think God purposely tried to make Moses believe that's what he's going to do? Does it sound like he's just kidding to you? Does it sound like this is just kind of a little joke? Hey, hey Moses, I'm going to play a little trick on you. I'm going to say something kind of goofy, see what you think of this. Or did it sound real? Moses, go down there. I'm done with the stiff-necked people. I'm going to destroy them. I'm starting all over. I have the right to do that. I did that once in this world with the flood. I'm going to do it again. And you, Moses, my choice servant, are going to rule over a different kind of a people. And it will be a great kingdom. Boy, that would appeal to your flesh. Moses was frustrated with these people. But he loved them. But more importantly, he loved God's glory so much that he says, you can't do that, God. So when God used the words, let me alone... He was actually saying, pray to me. Now, you're going to have to think about that one, but you take that home and you think about that. Because hinted in those words, let me alone, are because if you don't, I'm going to have to do what you say. Because I know what you're going to do. You're going to pray with faith and fervency and holy argument. And I'll have no choice but to answer your prayer. So it was an inducement to pray. Bishop Hall, we love that, that guy. He, he was born in 1575. And it, it's the, one of the most amazing books I have in my entire library. The Contemplations of Bishop Hall. And he says this, he said, Who would look for such a word from God to man? Quote, let me alone. Who would expect God to say, let me alone? As yet, Moses had said nothing. Before he opens his mouth, God prevents his importunity, that is, his persistence in prayer. He, 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 he keeps it from happening. He's holding it back, foreseeing, foreseeing that holy violence which the requests of Moses would offer to him. Holy violence. Do you dare to argue with God? You can, as long as it's on holy ground, biblical ground. He loves it. That's what this sermon's about. Moses stood trembling, says Hall, before the majesty of his maker, and yet hears him say, let me alone. The mercy of our God has, as it were, obliged his power to the faith of men. You know what that means? That's an old 1500s way of saying God has made his omnipotence the servant of faith-filled prayer. And that's why there is, as one of the old Puritans said, a certain omnipotency in prayer. Because prayer puts you in touch with the omnipotence of God. And if we pray in accordance to his will, omnipotence goes into action. I like Piper's little illustration that prayer is our little coat hanger that puts us in connection, in contact with the lightning bolts of heaven. 
And he says the fervent prayers of the faithful hold the hands of the Almighty. So that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here in Exodus 32. Why would God do this? That is, leave Moses with the impression that he was actually going to destroy his people because he wanted Moses to pray. He wanted him to pray with faith, fervency, holy argument, and perseverance. He didn't want Moses to act like um, a hyper, I'm going to say, Calvinist. And again, you can ask somebody, what in the world's a Calvinist? Maybe if you like, but that word's not important. Here's what's important. He didn't want Moses to say, well, God is a God of decrees, and whatever he's decreed is going to happen. I'm not going to pray. What is the will of the Lord is the will of the Lord. God has spoken. The will of the Lord be done because the will of the Lord will be done. I'm not going to pray. He didn't want Moses to be like that, and he doesn't want us to be like that. Moses knew that God could not act contrary to his nature by not keeping his promises, by not executing his decrees. But you know what? He still prayed. He prayed. Because Moses believed that God works through prayers, that God executes his decrees through prayers. Do you believe that? Now, there's some theology there. There's some serious theology there that's mysterious. Listen, Moses believed, we believe, that God executes his decrees through and because of and in connection with the prayers of his people. And from a human perspective, it wasn't going to happen for Moses and for the, for the good of the people of Israel unless Moses prayed. He was a great intercessor. He was a type of Christ in that regard. Prayer actually was essential. God was going to destroy these people if Moses didn't pray. But the praying was part of the decretive will of God. But the fact is, the decretive will of God unfolds and comes into fruition through our prayers. You say, that's a mystery. I can't buy into that. You can't buy into it because it's a mystery? Then you can't buy into hardly anything. It's a mystery to me that God always was and never had a beginning. It's a mystery to me that there are three persons who make one God. It's a mystery to me that our Savior had two natures. It's a mystery to me that God desires the salvation of all men and yet has determined who he will save. There are a thousand mysteries in the Bible. What do we do with them? We don't submit them to our finite, fallen, sinful brains. We bow down and we embrace them. It's a mystery. Admittedly, it's a mystery. But it's real. I want you to just notice with me real quickly. This is the only other passage we're turning to. And that would be Psalm 106, verses 19 through 23. Would you just quickly go to Psalm 106? This is in direct connection with uh, the Exodus passage. Psalm 106. We're thinking about how do God's decrees, which cannot but perfectly come to pass, how do those decrees fit with faith-filled holy argument from his people? We don't fully understand. And in fact, I'm going to put it this way. I'm not sure we even partially understand. But guess what? We don't have to understand. Now look at this passage in verse 19. <clears throat> they made a calf at Horeb and worshipped a metal image. <laughs> Think of that, worshipping a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. How ridiculous. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them? 
he was going to destroy them had not. Doesn't your Bible say that or something very similar to that? Doesn't your Bible give you the impression that it would have happened? What seemed to be the will of God was going to happen unless Moses prayed? If that isn't the natural meaning of the text, and you're trying to find something else in the text, then you're just not humbly coming before the text. I understand there's a theology that undergirds this, and I'm trying to help us understand the theology, but part of the theology is that God sometimes leads us to believe, always right in doing so, something to be His will, which in fact is not His will. Sometimes He makes us believe that something that's not His will is in fact His will because He wants us to come to Him in faith and fervency and holy argument and perseverance and give him the best of reasons for doing what we're asking to do. And guess what he does? He responds. He responds and he ends up doing what he had planned to do all along, but the plan included the prayers. That's all I'm saying. The plan included the prayers. Our daily privilege is to pray because God has ordained prayer as a means to Activate the decrees of God. There you go again, using weird words. What are you saying? My prayers activate. No, they're just, in a sense, yes, they're a means to move God to do what he planned to do all along, but wasn't going to do it unless you prayed. And he was determined to do it through your prayers. Yes, I'm going to use the word activate, and I don't apologize for the word persuade if you think of it in those terms. We're not persuading to God to do something truly against his will, We're persuading him to do what he wants to do all along, but he wants to hear us pray persuasive prayers. I'm just going to insert this question right now by way of applying it to your conscience. Do you ever try to persuade God? Or does that just seem irreverent to you? Well, I'm telling you this morning in this sermon, it's not irreverent. If what you're persuading him to do is biblical, is there any persuasion in your mouth going up to heaven based upon the Word of God in your prayers. If not, then you're not praying the way Moses prayed and the way God wants us to pray. And I don't apologize for the word activate. Listen to what Spurgeon said. The prayers of God's church are God's intentions. You will not misunderstand me. Do you hear that? The prayers of God's church are His intentions. Don't misunderstand me. What God writes in the book of His decree which no eye can see, that he, in process of time, writes in the book of Christian hearts, the book of the believer's desire. If those desires be inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's just an exact copy of the book of the divine decrees. And if the church be determined today to lift up her heart in prayer for the conversion of men, it is because God determined before all worlds that men should be converted. Your feeble prayer today, believer, says Spurgeon, can fly to heaven and awake the echoes of the slumbering decrees of God. Prayer is a decree escaped out of the prison of obscurity and come into the life and liberty among men. Pray, brother, pray, for when God inspires you, your prayer is as potent as the decrees of God. And you say, that's too much for me. But you know what? It's the truth. It's the truth. And we need to acknowledge that, and we need to rejoice in God's divine sovereignty and bow down, but we also need to just embrace the promises of prayer and to see how instrumental they are in the execution of God's decrees. Prayer is our responsibility. Understanding the mystery is not. Embracing it is, because it's revealed. And if you're criteria for what you'll embrace is based upon what you understand, as I hinted several minutes ago, then just forget it, because the Bible's full of those kinds of mysteries. Now, if I had time, which I don't, I would remind us of the long night that Jacob wrestled with God. That's actually what I was intending to pray. My fellow pastors thought I was praying on that, and I was. And then in the midst of my studies and preparation, I felt a different burden. But that's an amazing section, and I would encourage you to go to another chapter 32, not of Exodus, but of Genesis someday, maybe this afternoon, and read about that all-night prayer meeting that Jacob had with God, and he didn't know it was God at the beginning. And actually, in that, in that wrestling match, God says to Jacob, let me go. It's kind of like, leave me alone. 
And you remember what Jacob said? I will not let you go unless you bless me. He was in a heap of trouble. He thought his brother was going to kill him because his brother promised he was going to kill him. He was desperate and he needed God's blessing and protection. But he didn't know at first who he was wrestling with. And then in the middle of the wrestling match, God, which was really Christ, it was a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. It was the, it was the second person of the Trinity wrestling with him in the, in the form of a human being. And it's like Jesus said, um, just, just to let you know that I can win this match quickly if I want, I'm just going to touch your hip with my finger. Boom. And he's crippled. And he can hardly move. He's in severe pain. And he's severely inhibited. And so Jacob realizes this is not a mere man. And he prays, bless me, Lord. And he got his blessing. We can't look at that, but I am going to read to you one more quote from the Puritan Thomas Brooks about his prayer. And listen to this. And this is going to make you feel uncomfortable. Made me feel uncomfortable. But the more I think about it, the less uncomfortable I am. Fervent prayer is the soul's contention. Wait a minute. Contention? The soul's contention? It is the soul struggling with God. It is a sweating work. It is the sweat and blood of the soul. It is a laying out to the uttermost all the strength and powers of the soul. He that would gain a victory over God. I said, what? Thomas, don't use language like that. He who would gain a victory over God, that's irreverent. No, God wants us to prevail over what seems to be his will. He who would gain a victory over God in private prayer must strain every string of his heart. He must, in beseeching God, besiege him. And so get the better of him. There you go again, Brooks. He must be like importunate beggars, that is, beggars who won't give up, that will not be put off with frowns or silence or sad answers. Those that would be masters of their requests must be like the importunate widow. Press God so far as to put him to a holy blush, as if, as I may say with reverence, they must with an holy impudence make God ashamed to look them in the face if he should deny the importunity of their souls. Would you dare to do that? I know it seems irreverent, but it's very reverent. It's what pleases God. He loves it. As counterintuitive as that may seem to be, it demonstrates a deep faith. It demonstrates an understanding of the character and will of God. And it says, God, you can't do this to your people. You're not a liar. You're a God of integrity. You mu- God loves that kind of praying. And I'm challenging Heritage Baptist Church to pray like that. I'm saying I don't think, I'm challenging myself to pray like that. Why are we preaching in prayer? Because we believe that Heritage Baptist Church is weak in this area of our church life. We believe that. We believe we're weak in that area. We're weak individually and we're weak corporately. We've seen the pattern with the help of Pastor Mark. We've seen the prerequisite. It's faith. And now today we're seeing persuasion. Why do we exist as a church? We exist to be a gospel-centered community of worshipers on mission, to make, mature, and multiply disciples of Christ. Part of the gospel that is that we have access to the throne of grace. We have access to the throne room of God. Not only do we have access into the Holy of Holies, we have access into the throne room of God. And we can call the God of the universe our Father because of the gospel. Pastor Mark touched on that in his opening message. People shouldn't be praying the Lord's Prayer. Most people who pray the Lord's Prayer shouldn't be praying the Lord's Prayer. It's a lie. As soon as you say, our father or my father, he's not your father. The devil's your father unless you have come to Jesus and trusted in him to pay for your sins and been adopted into his family and have the spirit of adoption within your soul. Then you can call him our father. That's what the gospel does. The gospel makes us right with God and forgives us of all of our sins so that we have access to the holy of holies and the throne room. So, 
We can do this with each other and we can do this for each other. So we gather corporately on the Lord's Day, the, the first day of the week, the day in which He rose from the dead. And we pray corporately as we did this morning. And we gather other times to pray corporately. And then we gather several times a month in our smaller communities to pray with and for each other. Dear people, praying is a huge part of our worship. I don't know if you thought about it, but every song we sang today was a prayer. It was a prayer. Realize that whenever you sing. It's a prayer. Are you praying? Don't let music bother you when Jonathan sometimes plays those soft chords while we're praying. That's not designed to be a distraction. It's designed to keep our minds. We're before the throne of God. All of our praying in songs is accompanied by music. So we pray corporately, we pray privately, we pray for one another. It's a huge part of our worship, and obviously it's a huge part of our mission because one of the things we're trying to do is get serious about living on mission around here. We love the Lord's Day. It's a beautiful day. It's a glorious day. It's a reminder of, a, of an eternal rest that's coming. Six days of work, a day of rest and refreshment, delighting in God, living for His glory, meeting with one another, a foretaste of the final coming together around the Lord's table, around the great supper. But every Monday through Saturday is work. And we look forward to the rest and the refreshment, which pictures the eternal final rest that has been purchased. It's an already, I rest in Christ, but the war is not over. Someday we'll rest for all eternity. But listen, it's more than just work. It's living on mission, living on mission, living on mission. We don't have to go somewhere to be missionaries. We just have to open our eyes, cultivate relationships, talk to people, share the gospel with them, invite them to our community group or to our home or wherever else. But none of it's going to do any good. None of it's going to do any good without the blessing of God. And the blessing of God usually doesn't come without prayer. And the kind of prayer that brings down the greatest blessings from God is faith-filled, fervent, holy arguing in a way that says, I'm not going to go unless you bless me. May that kind of prayer characterize this church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us. Help us. Help us to change. Help us to grow in the grace of faith and fervency and holy argument and perseverance. Lord, may days come in the life of this church when the praying will be such that we'll look back with sadness, sadness at how anemic our prayers used to be. Please help us. Lord, surely this would be pleasing to you. This is my holy argument. God, wouldn't you be more pleased with us if we prayed more like Moses? Then, if so, grant us enablement. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's do that in response. Let's stand and let's pray together.